Glad you're here on this Wednesday night. We have been in what part of the Bible for the last couple months? Matthew. All right. And we've been talking about the... The Beatitudes, yeah, broadly. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because... Yeah, there you go. He was on the mountain when he gave it. And as we've said a number of times, his teachings here probably, if you took the teachings of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and Moses' Ten Commandments, you formed the basis of the moral code of Western civilization. And that's a pretty big statement, but it is very, very, very true. Anyone remember what we talked about last week? Yeah, the lady preacher was here. She did a good job. You remember, Linnell taught last week. She's doing the missions in the Connect class tonight. Um, what are the kind of things that we've been talking about? Yeah, storing your treasures in heaven. week before that, there were about three different... Actually, it's been about four little sections on money. About storing your treasures in heaven. Last week, it was not about worrying about earthly things. It doesn't mean you work and wait for the check to come in the mail from Uncle Sam, but it simply means God is the one that takes care of me, and I prioritize my life around His kingdom and His ways. And, you know, as I work and as I do my part, God takes care of me. All right, anything else? Yeah, okay, yeah, there we go. We had a card, and perhaps you've been using that on how to pray, using the Lord's Prayer as a pattern or a God when His disciple says, teach us, Lord, how to pray. Anything else? The real reasons to fast. You've got a pretty good memory, or else you're the only talker here. No. Well, good. Okay, well, tonight, let's, uh, let's look at three little bite-sized sections. One thing I really like about the um, Sermon on the Mount is most of it is, is in sections of three, four, five verses. It's not, you know, though granted it's contextualized. You know what the, the, the word that contextualizes the Sermon on the Mount is? It's the word repent. Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount with basically calling people to change the way they were living and begin to turn and follow him. So what Jesus was doing is basically saying, hey, look, guys, I don't care which way you were going, whether you were just a total pagan and heathen or whether you were a, a ritualistic Pharisee. We've talked a lot about the Pharisees who were religious. What were they? Begin with an H. Yeah, hypocrites. So they were pretenders or play actors. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm less concerned about the external form and more concerned about an inward transformation of your heart after me. So he would take much of the Sermon on the Mount where he would take, for example, thou shalt not murder. And then he would take it to another step. Or thou shalt not commit adultery. And he'd go beyond the act of adultery. And he'd say, listen, if you've got those lustful thoughts in your mind, <laughs> guilty. So Jesus is looking at inward transformation, not just external observances. A lot of people think that if I, if I go to church, if I give a little money, if I do something good, then I'm going to heaven. Well, let me know it's way more than that. It's about a heart that's captured by Christ. Well, tonight let's look at three things. A section on judging. Do not judge. We'll try to figure out what that means and what it does not mean. Then he had a section on prayer called Keep Asking, Seeking, and Knocking. And lastly, one called the narrow way is contrasted with the wide path of destruction. But let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Let's look at this little section first about judging. Let me, uh, let me read it, and we'll talk about it, and maybe uh, at the end we can find some application. Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. 
you, what's it say? Hypocrite. You first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then an interesting little verse here. Don't give what is holy to the dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. All right, so let's kind of go back and kind of see if we can get a little bit out of this. Let's look at the first verse. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, this word judge, it simply means basically forming an opinion after you've carefully weighed the evidence. Forming an opinion. Now, the Message Bible translates the verse, don't pick on people, don't jump on their failures, don't criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. So that's kind of getting at the heart of it. Now, you often hear people that are secular people, and they will say to a religious person, particularly a conservative person who believes the Bible, well, you're not supposed to judge me. I mean, they could be in an adulterous relationship, a homosexual relationship. They may be, you know, whatever, just on down the line. Things that are considered normal in our culture, but that are considered sinful by the Bible. And they basically say, listen, you don't have a right to tell me what to do. Who are you? Doesn't the Bible say, do not? Okay, is that what the Bible's saying? Is the Bible telling us that we're to refrain from any sense of moral um, figuring out if it's right or wrong or assessment of people's behavior? Half knows and half I don't knows. Well, let's explore it a little bit. Remember that Jesus said in John seven twenty four, Jesus said, Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Can you say judge with righteous judgment? So in one verse Jesus said, Don't judge, and now he says judge with righteous judgment. So is the Bible contradicting itself? Or is there perhaps a different meaning? I think it's a little bit of a different meaning. Actually, this sense of this word judging, forming judgments, is really taught throughout the Bible. And when Jesus told us that we would know the false teacher by their what? Fruits. And he basically said, look on the tree. He said, can an evil tree bring forth good fruit or can a good tree bring forth evil fruits? Even so, by their fruits, you will know them. Well, a judgment is simply a weighing. It's a looking at a person's character. It's a looking at their behaviors. Uh, the New Testament would often go as far as excommunicating a person from the church after they had done what? Evaluated their behavior, they had refused to repent, and they had to put up the standard of righteousness. You have been reading in the last few, uh, as we've been reading through the epistle of John, one of the big words that appears there is the word truth. And the false teachers, they were told not even to let them come in their homes. Don't, don't even bid them Godspeed. So you have to make a judgment. You have to make an assessment. So I will suggest to you to properly interpret this is that what Jesus is most concerned about here, and let me read this from you. I think probably the best assessment or, or interpretation of this is found in the notes in the Spirit-Filled Life Bible. Now, if I was going to buy a Bible, a study Bible, which I think everyone needs, because a good study Bible will help you understand a book that was written 2,000 years ago and some of the customs and how it all fits together. Because I mean, the Bible was not originally written to us in the 21st century. The Bible was written to people many centuries ago. Now, it applies to us, but we've got to understand what it meant before we can apply it to us. So, uh, the Spirit-Filled Life Bible says Jesus does not forbid criticism, opinions, or even the condemnation of wrongdoing. What Jesus forbids is the spirit of fault-finding that overlooks one's own shortcomings while assuming the role of supreme judge in regards to the sins of others. Now, who were one of the primary people in the audience that Jesus was talking to in the Sermon on the Mount? That's exactly right, the Pharisees. 
So what Jesus is saying, listen, you, these Pharisees are all about the external. I'm about the internal. Now, um, so when he's saying don't judge, it seems to me that Jesus is more concerned first about you looking in yourself and not being a holier than thou, not being self-righteous, and not being the judge of the world. You know, Jesus even said if your brother sins against you, what are you supposed to do? You're to forgive him, but you're to go to him. Uh, James tells us if one falls from the face and somebody brings him back, you've covered a multitude of sins. Well, how can you go to someone who has sinned or fallen if you do not make a judgment that indeed their actions are sinful? So he's not saying don't judge, but what he's talking about is the hypocritical. Remember the word hypocrite that appears again here? So I think as you interpret all these verses in their context, what he's concerned about, see, when he talks about... Um, uh, well, first of all, he says you're going to be judged with the measure you judge or in the way you judge, you're going to be judged that same way. And notice now, God is doing the judging. It's not another person that's judging you. God is going to judge you. And basically what it means is this, don't judge others if you don't wish to be judged by God. So what it's saying is, don't you be this holier than thou, picking apart the faults of people, while you yourself have your own separate lifestyle, that anything goes. It's almost like my sins are forgivable, but your sins deserve judgment. Right? I need mercy, but you deserve judgment because you should know better and I'm going to help you know better. Have you ever been around an environment? You know, there's two, there, legalism in, in, in the most basic sense is not a bad thing when we are trying to help one another live holy and godly lives. But how are we to go to a person who sins? The Bible says we're to, in meekness, endeavor to restore that person, lest you also fall by the wayside. Which simply means we're to be humble. We're not supposed to go out as the proud religious person who's got it all together to help a poor, humble sinner back on their feet. We're to very humbly to go to a person. You remember when, uh, was it, was it uh, with Noah? Uh, was it Noah? No. Um, got, he, got, he got drunk in the cave. Who was it? Um, Lot. Lot and 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 oh, it was a mess that was there. Actually, what I'm thinking about is Noah when he was <laughs> after he got off the the ark, he got drunk and he was in a cave. Now this was some period of time. Obviously, grapes had grown back. And what did his first son do? His first son went in there and said, "Hey, Dad, didn't have any clothes on or something." But it was embarrassing and uncovering. What did his other two sons do? That's right. They took a co a cloak, a blanket, they walked in backwards, and they covered Dad's nakedness. Well, that should be the way that we treat one another. We should confront people. The Bible teaches if an elder sins, what are you to do? Rebuke them publicly. So we to have a standard of righteousness, but we're to do it in a humble way, in a covering way rather than an exposing self-righteous way. And the heart of this thing seems to be that if you are that kind of person. Now, there's a phrase that's used here. Um, let's see, what is the phrase? Uh, reciprocal judgment. It's kind of a measuring scale. In other words, remember when Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for you shall do what? Obtain mercy. When you give mercy, you obtain mercy. Uh, regarding forgiveness, Jesus said, If you forgive man, what will happen to you? Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive, he won't forgive you. And now we're saying the way that you judge other people is the way that God himself will judge you. And the big thing here is, is this scripture is calling us to first look within ourselves 
at our own lives before we tackle the problems or the sins of the other people. Now, this word speck, notice verse 3. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? There's a contrast to a log. A speck was a small piece of straw, of chaff, or wood, something very, very insignificant, whereas the log was like a piece of lumber. It was a board, and it's obviously intended to be something, you know, a huge contrast here. That basically, we're contrasting the insignificant wrongs that others do to us with the enormous sins we commit against God. See, so oftentimes, you know, most of the sins that we commit when it boils down to it against other people are very minor in comparison to what our sins have done to God. Uh, but, but the gist of what he's getting at here is it trying to exclude this sense of condemnation of the, other, of the other people. When you talk about judging, I find myself often as a pastor that people often ask me to arbitrate, to help them figure out, to say, you know, you know what's going on with our relationship? Our church is messed up. This leader's messed up. Would you help us just judge and discern and figure out what to do? When you think about judging, it's very important that you judge. When you judge, that you begin with yourself, not the other person. And this is just what he's saying. Why do you, you know, when you're going to talk to someone else about the struggles in their life, you know, don't you just look and pick them apart in a minute way when you've got your own or your own issues. And here's another big thing. Be very careful about passing judgment on a person's motives. How many know you can do the right thing for the wrong reason? And you can do the wrong thing and even though you tried to do the right thing. And how many know ultimately only God can judge our heart? And one day he will judge the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. So it's kind of a little of a tricky, not tricky, but it's, I guess it is a little tricky here, this, this, uh, this sense of, of, of this passage. But the bottom line, the bigger picture seems to be that the Bible does not forbid, actually it encourages us to make, you know, righteous judgment, Jesus taught it, but what he forbids is that self-righteous condescending hypocrisy that picks you apart while excusing the things that I do that are wrong. That's helpful. Now, this other verse is just kind of thrown in there before the next section. He says, talk something about dogs and pigs and, and pearls. Don't give what is holy to the dogs. Now, I read this all day long, and I can't for the life of me figure if this goes in context with the verse you just read or if it stands alone. But <laughs> let me at least tell you the best I can figure it out. Don't give what's holy to the dogs. Now, dogs is a term that was used disparagingly. They did not have pets in their houses like we do that, you know, that got their nails trimmed and bows in their hairs. I mean, that was, that was not the world they live in. When you talked about dogs, it was, a, it was a very disparaging term. It was a detrimental term that you would speak of someone. It was, you know, along with what they might call unclean. Uh, don't give what is holy to the dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Now, pearls, valuable stone, uh, it could be beautiful beads, but obviously it was something valuable or precious. And the sense here in a spiritual sense, um, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, how many know when a pig eats? A pig doesn't really discern between garbage and good food. Have you ever been around pigs? I raised pigs when I was a kid. You just you throw the table scraps in there. You throw junk in there. You know they'll just root through that stuff and they'll just eat anything that's there. And it just doesn't seem like it makes that much difference. And what he's I think he's trying to say here is there are people in the world that are lost people, that are heathen people, that are secular, that are pagan people, that are away from God. And when you try to bring holy things to them, for example, if you were to go on I don't know 
some late-night TV show where they make fun of everything and you were to genuinely try to give your Christian testimony, they would laugh at you, they would boo you, they would hiss at you. You know, you can oftentimes try to share with someone an experience you've had in Christ and not only do they not understand it or politely listen, but they just make fun of it. They, it's, it's almost like you are casting your, 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 your pearls before swines. And what Jesus is basically saying is don't do it. If the people that you are relating to and you're trying to bring spiritual truth and spiritual life to, what did he say when his disciples, when they went to a town and men didn't receive them, what were they supposed to do? Shake the dust off their feet and go on down the road. So here again is kind of a picture that uh, my sense is that we, we need to be people who are sharing our faith in the gospel wherever we go. When necessary, we use words. But when we use those words, and it's not just hostility or people that don't like us or reject us. But when they begin to demean, when they begin to make fun of, when they besmirch the holy name of Christ, it seems to be that God has basically said, listen, don't, don't, don't bring before their, their feet because they're just like a bunch of pigs and dogs. And if you do anything to them, again, don't look down on them and condemn them, but pray that God would have mercy on their soul that they might be receptive. Okay, uh, before we go further, let me ask you particularly about this part about judging. How can we apply that to our life? Anything that came to your mind as we were talking about this? Give me some personal application that you can apply to the Scripture. Because, again, the Bible is not just to be learned as information. It's to be applied into our life. So something that you might pick up very practically, how might you might put this into practice about what Jesus taught about judging other people. Oh, so she, yeah, she's saying sometimes we're much harder on other people than we are on ourselves who are doing the same things. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Anybody else? All right. Look to the good rather than the bad. Anybody else? Sounds like she's got some experience on the bad end of the receiving end of that. Yeah, it hurts, doesn't it? Particularly when you're judged by Christian people. Stand up for righteousness. What do you mean by that? So what she's saying is don't be afraid to address things in our culture that are wrong. I mean, the Bible, we're, we're not always going to be loved. Jesus actually said, you're going to be hated. If they hated me, the reason they hate you, Jesus said, is because they hated me first. But again, when we do that, when we are that light, remember that was in, in, in our teaching, salt and light, we're to be a light that's on a hill. We're not to be some self-righteous person saying, I'm good and you're bad. I mean, no, we're all sinners just saved by the grace of God. See, so very true. And, and if it's a price to pay, what did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are you when men persecute you and say things evil against you your reward is great in heaven so once again life on this earth is a dress rehearsal for eternity this is not the end all and if there's some as a price we have to pay and we'll really see that as we close tonight about the narrow gate and the wide path of destruction right, very very good all right let's go a little bit further here the uh, the next passage uh, at, keep asking seeking and knocking now i'll read it from the new living translation um Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on asking, you'll receive. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he kind of gives an example here, and he's basically comparing himself, God the Father, to our parents and ourselves, as, as wicked as we are at times, that if our children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if your child asks for a fish, do you give them a snake or a serpent? Well, of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more? Everybody say, how much more? This is the argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Don't, uh, and then the golden rule, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. And this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Now, that's pretty big. Okay, but let's go back here. Now, I read from the New Living Translation, keep on asking, and you'll receive, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And uh, my King James that I read basically said, ask, seek, and knock. The problem with the, the, uh, the English language is the English language, as it differs from the Greek language, is there's different tenses of verbs. In the Greek language, these words, ask, seek, and knock, not only in the present tense, but they suggest a continued petition. Ask and keep on asking. It's encouraging persistence. And you can't see that just by a reading in, a, in some of your English texts. Um, again, the difference between your King James and your New Living Translation, the King James is endeavors to be a word-for-word equivalent translation. You know, your New American Standard, your Revised Standard Version. Whereas some of your newer versions, your New International Version, your New Living Translation, try to be what's called a dynamic equivalent, which basically tries to take the sense of what the authors were saying and help you understand the meaning. That's why a lot of times when you read a more modern translation, it tends to make more sense to you. The downside is sometimes the interpreter puts in his thoughts in it as he tries to interpret it. So I just kind of see value in both, and the bottom line is neither one of us are Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic scholars, and, you know, there's so much in the Bible that is perfectly clear and easy to obey that the parts that are a little, you know, unclear or, or the meaning varies, I just kind of put them on the back burner. But here there's a great promise. And what you want to... When I read this, I have to be careful not to interpret this verse through my experience. Because if you interpret the Bible through your experience, you will cease to believe a lot of things the Bible clearly teaches. See, I don't have a lot of my experience that lines up with the supernatural parts of the Bible. I have some. But I believe what the Bible teaches about believers laying hands on the sick and recovering, uh, elders laying hands on the sick and anointing with oil. Uh, I believe that uh, believers can prophesy. I believe these things first because the Bible teaches it, not because I've experienced it. And this is big. Because if you bring the Bible down to your experience in life, I think you've got a problem here. So here in Jesus' teaching on prayer, this is a very, very forthright message. Basically, very simply, he's saying this. Everybody can pray, and God will hear, and God will answer prayers. And the first thing we want to think is, well, I had a prayer prayed and wasn't answered, so it must not be true. But Jesus is saying this thing about prayer, first and foremost, asking, seeking, and knocking with persistence, and I will answer your prayer. And that's the starting point, and it's the foundation um, uh, uh, of what it's teaching. And it's interesting how it uses the father-son relationship, that you, you know how you love your kids. And let me tell you this, your Father in heaven loves you way, way, way more. So let's kind of take a, a little step further. Once again, asking is not asking God a question, but it's asking very specifically for what you want God to do. I have a daughter that is endeavoring to uh, find out which college she's supposed to go to and how it's supposed to be paid for. So we're not just saying, well, God, you know, I don't know what Bethany's going to do next year. No, we're praying, Lord, would you please reveal to Bethany and to us where she's supposed to go to school and will you make the way to show us how to pay for it? Because that's a need that's in our life. It's something that's there. So the Bible is encouraging specific asking. Seeking is that you're looking for a particular thing. You know, the book of James says you have not because you, say it again, 
You ask not. But then it says you ask and receive not because you yeah, ask amiss to consume it on your own lusts. Okay? But the Bible is very, very clear on asking. Just because God knows our needs in advance doesn't preclude the fact that the Bible teaches us to ask for them. Knocking simply is a sense is knocking on the door where God is or the door that God opens. Uh, it's absolute language. Uh, it simply says God will give to those who the thing that they are asking for. Now, that being the case, then, could you tell me some reasons why prayers are not answered? Real quickly, why are some prayers not answered? We just said one in James because you ask amiss to consume it on your lust. Uh, lack of faith is a big one. Okay, why else? Not walking in love. Okay. Oh, unforgiveness. Because in the same way you forgive, God will forgive. So forgiveness is like a water hose. When you kink it, when you refuse to forgive, the flow of grace in your life stops. Anything else? So he could have answered your prayer when he said no. Now, here's a woman that had a barren womb and wanted more than anything else a baby. And she's worked through the journey and said, I had to surrender my will and my desires and everything else. And I adopted a child. So sometimes the will of God is higher than just what we want or desire. Well, that's a big one. If all you want to do is go to heaven when you die, you, that's over your head. Anything else? Quickly? Scripture-based? Then that's a big one. The timing. Remember John the Baptist's parents? Back to the barrenness. They'd been barren all their life, but it wasn't time for John the Baptist to be born. They were waiting. And that is a huge one. See, that's a huge one because we oftentimes give up. Remember the story of the persistent widow? Remember her story in Scripture where basically she talked about, uh, Jesus rather talked about a woman who went to a judge, the whole deal, and the purpose was to teach faith that when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So oftentimes, why else are sometimes prayers not answered or hindered? He knows the future. What's that mean? Okay, that might hurt you. The Israelites begged for quail in the wilderness, right? And what did God do? He gave it to them, but man, the trouble came with it. All right, very good. One, one last one. Not asking according to God's heart, because there's another promise in John that said if we ask according to his will, we know he hears us, we know we have the desires, okay? All right, anything else? Oh, abiding in him. Okay, so Jesus is not Santa Claus. Right, how about one from the book of Daniel? Can you think back what happened when Daniel began to pray? What, 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 what did they say? Yeah, well, the answer was sent. Michael the archangel said this, but the prince of Persia, we, it's like Satan was stopping the answer from coming. And this is why it's so important, intercessory prayer in the life of the church, praying through, travailing prayer, praying in the spirit, praying until. Remember the acronym PUSH, P-U-S-H, pray until something happens. So, see, the bottom line, though, the Bible teaches is God is a prayer-answering God. That's the bottom line, and it was very clear and forthright. And as we are walking in the light, as he is in the light, we can have an expectation that God will answer our prayer. But some of these other things maybe kind of more fully paint the picture, okay? Any application to this before we move on? Yeah, which really is interesting because when Jesus taught us to pray, what was the first thing he said? Our Father which art in heaven... 
which means holy, you're set apart. And then, and then what was the first petition? That was the positioning. What was the first petition? Let your... So the whole orientation of prayer is not about me. It's about Him. The, the whole orientation of the Christian life is not about me. It's about Him. And that's the step of maturity. When you first come to Christ, you come to Christ because you have a need. You know, you're hungry, you're lonely, you're sick, you're, you know, you're in prison, you know, you're lost, you want to go to heaven. And it's you, but, but at some point in time, God begins to help you grow and mature, and then it begins to come about Him and His kingdom and the advancement of His kingdom. And it's almost like our needs are met kind of, kind of uh, uh, at the end there. Well, um, uh, what was the last verse there? Do to others whatever you would like to do to uh, them to do to you. This is the essence of the law and the prophets, which means this is what the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Old Testament, this sums it up. And what is that called? The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All right. Any comments? How does that apply to everyday life, the golden rule? How would America be, let's ask, how would America be different if we lived that way? Yeah, which really is interesting because when Jesus taught us to pray, what was the first thing he said? Our Father which art in heaven, which means holy, you're set apart. And then, and then what was the first petition? That was the positioning. What was the first petition? Let your... So the whole orientation of prayer is not about me. It's about him. The, the whole orientation of the Christian life is not about me. It's about him. And that's the step of maturity. When you first come to Christ, you come to Christ because you have a need. You know, you're hungry, you're lonely, you're sick, you're, you know, you're in prison, you know, you're lost, you want to go to heaven. And it's you, but, but at some point in time, God begins to help you grow and mature, and then it begins to come about him and his kingdom and the advancement of his kingdom. And it's almost like our needs are met kind of, kind of uh, uh, at the end there. Well, um, uh, what was the last verse there? Do to others whatever you would like to do to uh, them to do to you. This is the essence of the law and the prophets, which means this is what the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Old Testament, this sums it up. And what is that called? The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All right. Any comments? How does that apply to everyday life, the golden rule? How would America be, let's ask, how would America be different if we lived that way? Eh? We wouldn't be trying to get rid of God, okay. All right. Say again. A teacher would have peace in her classroom, all right? Okay, how about, you wouldn't have to lock your doors and have alarm companies. Nobody would be hungry. That's pretty powerful. Now, that's social justice if you've ever heard it. Steve? People would be doing what somehow the government is either we've abandoned or the government has taken over. Absolutely. Anything else? How about we wouldn't need all the lawyers and all the, you know, all the everything to protect against people that lie and take advantage of one another and defraud one another and are crooks. Because you wouldn't want someone to defraud and take advantage and lie to you. I mean, it would solve a heck of a lot of problems if we would live that way. Well, I mean, let it start first with us and let it start first within our family. 
Let it start within our marriage. Let it start the way we raise our children and teach our children how to relate to one another. Something powerful. When Jesus said about the two greatest commandments in the whole Bible, what did he say? What was the first one? Love the Lord with all your heart. And what was the second one? Yeah, there you go. Let's finish up here real quickly. Uh, verse 13, the narrow way. Enter through the, what? Narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Now we have a little bit of a shift here in this Sermon on the Mount. We are beginning to summarize now. We're, we're beginning basically to do this is uh, everything that Jesus has taught so far is basically saying this. What I have just taught you is the narrow way. And where will it lead you? To heaven. The way of destruction has some eternal overtones to it. We're talking about hell. And Jesus basically is contrasting his way to the way of the religious people. Remember multiple times in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus told us that you have heard it said, but I say to you. So when you have heard it said, there was a wide path that was religious, though the case may be. But this verse is literally teaching us that there's more people that are on the wide path to destruction than they're on the road to life. And this wide path, it kind of paints a picture. It's wide, it's broad, um, whereas the, the narrow gate, let's see, uh, is leading to life. Multitudes of people will never face this. Most people, most people want to follow the path of ease and self-indulgence. Most, most people want the easy way. Most people don't want to sacrifice. Most people don't want to do right. When there's a price to be with it. Most people would rather do wrong or most people would rather keep their mouths shut. But what Jesus is saying here, you need to be bent on, I'll just call eternal safety above everything else and take what the way that leads you, whatever the cost is going to be. In other words, whatever the cost of this narrow pathway that leads to life is, that's the one that you want to take. If one day you're, it's a choice between your job or your retirement or whatever, and not your politics but your basic religious values and the teachings of Scripture, which will you choose? Because often the narrow pathway has a cost to it. It's interesting that we want to have Christianity without a cross. And I don't mean Jesus' cross. The cross in its most basic sense is not a decoration around our neck or on our walls. The cross was a place of what? Yeah, death, of sacrifice. The Bible, didn't the Bible say in Galatians that you are crucified with Christ? Didn't Jesus tell us that we are to, what, deny ourselves and take up what? Our cross and follow him. What do you think that means? That wherever this narrow path of life leads us, it could be as something as simple as the Holy Spirit telling you to give somebody some money to go to the ramp. And it's a step of obedience. It could be something as significant as saying, I want you to give your life to the mission field. It could be something, that, I don't know, I want you to go and I want you to serve in the homeless shelter. You know, I want you to go and make a stand. I'm glad people are making stand in America. I'm glad people are going to tea parties all over America. Now, don't think Republican or Democrat, because they're all across America, all across the spectrum. There's Democrat, Republican, Independents. And, and they're using a word in America now that's conservative. It's a word that I like. It's a word that I consider myself. But I'm not just a social conservative or a fiscal conservative. I'm a theological conservative. I'm someone that believes the Bible in its most basic teaching, that it is the inerrant word of God, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And when you make those kind of stands in life, you'll pay a price. But Jesus is basically saying, if the narrow road causes you to pay a price, you pay it. Because your goal is not this earth. 
Your goal is what? It's eternity. And we just live in a world, my friend, where there's going to be a little bit of sacrifice and suffering along the way. There'll be some fun. There'll be some glory. There'll be some reward. But the bottom line, Jesus said, whatever the price is, you pay it because I'm going to reward you at the end. Remember the teaching in this Sermon on the Mount is that you can get your reward now or... Yeah. And if you live in such a way to get it now, it's all over. If men pat you on the back, if you do your good deeds to be seen by men, if your fasting is to be seen by men, if you pray out loud so people can hear you, you've got all the reward there is. But if you do these things in secret, in private, as under the Father, there's great reward in heaven that awaits you. So anyway, that's the Sermon on the Mount for tonight. Praise the Lord. Thanks for coming. And my prayer for you is that you will be a doer of the word and not a hearer.